Our scripture reading is John 12, 12 to 26. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 899. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Linda. So John has spent his first 11 chapters on the first two to three years of Jesus' life in ministry, or life of ministry, we should say. But now he's very intentionally and very dramatically slowing the pace down. 11 chapters spent on two to three years, and then the final 10 chapters are spent on roughly one week of Jesus' life. And so we get a more thorough treatment of Jesus' words and works during these chapters. Last week, Brandon unpacked for us a mind, uh, I guess the fallout of a mind-blowing miracle of Jesus. A dead man, Lazarus, is raised to life. The only proper response to this was to throw a party, which they did on the Saturday before Passover. Mary and Martha throw Jesus and Lazarus this dinner party to remember, with Jesus being the guest of honor and getting treatment only fit for a king. They celebrated him big time. Well, it's probably no surprise that Jesus' star is skyrocketing at this point. The religious authorities are not happy with this development. Their increased marginalization and Jesus' fame rising. So they begin to plot both to kill Jesus and, believe it or not, to kill Lazarus too, to get rid of any proof that Jesus did what he said he did. And so there's this secret coup being rehearsed in some dark alley of Bethany. And while this coup is being rehearsed, the party ends in Jesus' honor. So Jesus goes to bed, and then he wakes up. That's on the Sunday before Passover, which would be celebrated the following Friday. And and so Jesus wakes up on this Sunday and makes the mile-and-a-half trek to Jerusalem. And if you're tracking here, we're just five days away from Passover, which means that we're five days away from Jesus dying. That's where we're at in in Jesus' calendar of his last days. Now you have to understand what is happening in front of Jesus as he begins to make this mile and a half trek to Jerusalem. 
As he plotted toward the city, millions of others were coming to the city to set up shop to celebrate Passover, gathering in Jerusalem. One ancient historian, his name was Josephus, he estimated that there were close to three million people in the city that week. A lot of people there. Well, as word quickly spreads throughout the town that Jesus is coming, the energy in the city ramps up big time. The whole place is electric. The religious authorities had their target in their grasp. Finally, he was there for the taking. Jesus was their world's most wanted man, and they were going to get him. And yet, complicating the situation for them was the fact that swarms and swarms of people were coming to see and celebrate the very man that they wanted to bury. And so they were in a bind. They're in a corner here. They couldn't just arrest him, or the crowds would turn on them instead of turning on him. So the dramatic tension is really thick in the city. And yet, here comes Jesus, riding right into that tension down a dusty street in Jerusalem. And as he entered the city, the people took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, to celebrate him. There would have been little difficulty finding one of these branches in the city. These palm trees were all over the place and they still grow there. These palm branches have become a symbol of nationalistic pride. Like you and I might wave the American flag on July 4th, they would wave these palm branches as a, as a symbol of their nationalism. The imagery was drawn from two centuries earlier when a man named Simon drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and reclaimed the city for the Jews. And once his reconquest of the city was complete, all the inhabitants grabbed these palm branches and they waved them in celebration of this man that just rescued them. The imagery was so profound, this palm tree imagery was so profound that palms became prominent symbolism on the coinage of the day. It meant something to them. It was, it was a symbol of pride about their nation. So it was no mistake that they were waving palm branches when Jesus is walking into the city. They weren't just fanning Jesus. They were lauding him. They were venerating him, just like they had their previous deliverer, Simon. And then they cried out, if you look at verse uh, 13, they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now that's a quote directly from Psalm 118. This same psalm had been sung just 100 years prior. So Simon is 200 years prior, uh, and this uh, Psalm 118 had been sung 100 years prior when this guy named Judas Maccabeus drove the Greeks out of the temple. Do you remember Judas? Judas the hammer, we talked about him a few weeks ago. What a guy, what a name, Judas the hammer. But that was the first Hanukkah. They were celebrating the first Hanukkah when Judas drove the Syrians out of the temple. And so with the palm branches being waved and the people chanting Psalm 118, clearly they were thinking of Jesus in the same light they thought of Simon, in the same light they thought of Judas the hammer as deliverers. First there was Simon, and then there was Judas, and now here there's Jesus, the same kind of deliverer that's going to release us from oppression. So they were going to celebrate him like they had celebrated them. Well, the crowd was fully expecting to see Jesus issue a call to arms and strategically begin to drive out the hated Roman army. They desperately wanted out from underneath of Rome's thumb. And so you can imagine the excitement that they had 
when they discovered that they had found just the man to do it. So they shouted with vigor and joy, Hosanna! And Hosanna means give salvation now. So they're shouting at him, give us salvation now. Free us from oppression. But these people weren't looking for soul salvation in the way that maybe you and I have come to understand what getting saved means. That's not what they meant by by crying out, give us salvation now. They wanted their nation and culture and future saved. They were looking for deliverance from a different kind of oppressor. Verse 14. Then Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So verse 14 there is actually another Old Testament quotation. It's quoting the Old Testament prophet Zechariah from chapter 9, verse 9. And so in other words, Zechariah is saying, uh, he, he was saying many years before, look, you have a king. And when this king finally comes to you, here's how he's going to come. He's going to come to you riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the colt of a donkey. So Jesus is intentionally fulfilling a prophecy of Zechariah 9 here. We learn in the other Gospels that Jesus had made specific arrangements for his disciples to get this donkey and bring it to him. He wasn't just offered one on the side of the road and decided it was time to take a load off of his feet. He actually intentionally asked his, his buddies, his disciples, hey, go get this donkey for me and let me ride it into Jerusalem. So he's self-consciously, very self-awarely fulfilling this prof- prophecy from Zechariah 9 here. I was listening to this popular Orthodox Jew on a podcast this week. He's a man uh, much smarter than I am, and yet he mingles irreconcilable ideas about Jesus. He was remarking about how Jesus was an exemplary rabbi. Rabbi just means teacher. But he, so he was an exemplary teacher, but not the Messiah. But Jesus simply won't let us get away with such lazy distinctions about him. There's just no way to tag Jesus as a good rabbi, as a good teacher, but not the Messiah, because Jesus self-awarely claims to be the Messiah. If he lied about being the Messiah, what else did he lie about? Have you ever wrestled with who the identity of Jesus, what the identity of Jesus really is? You need to really wrestle with this. Was Jesus a good guy, or was he a lying bad guy? You need to fall in one of two camps. Subtle moves like the one Jesus is making here by riding into the city on a donkey, not on a horse, but on a donkey, it made it impossible to claim that Jesus was a good rabbi, but not the Messiah. Either he constantly divided and lied and led Orthodox Jews astray, either that's his resume, or he actually is a good teacher and the Messiah. You have to fall in one of two camps. He cannot be one without the other. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing here. He was claiming to be a deliverer king, but not like Judas the Hammer, who paraded around town in a victory lap on a large warrior horse. The crowd here wanted a king with a sword, but Jesus came humbly as the living word. And Jesus totally could have started a political revolt here. The power was in his grasp. If his intentions were purely political, he could have done that. He had millions in his corner. 
the grand majority were extolling his greatness. He could have whipped this crowd up. Imagine if Jesus cruised in on a Clydesdale, decked out in armor with a big warrior sword. The place would have gone nuts. The Jews finally had their deliverer. But that is not how Jesus comes into the city. It must, have, it must have just blown the minds of the crowds. It must have mystified them so deeply. They're all straining to the front of the crowd to get a glimpse of this new warrior hero. Finally, it was time for the hammer to step aside and, let, and give way to the new deliverer of the Jews. And then they saw him. On a donkey? On a baby donkey? The humble beast of peace? What is this? This is no place for a hero. They must have been so confused. What is Jesus doing here? I mean, he and his disciples had walked these same streets countless times. What's different now? Why this time is he deciding to travel by way of a donkey? Well, we already mentioned that he's fulfilling the words of Zechariah 9, but I think he's also very intentionally tamping down the nationalistic expectations of the people there in Jerusalem. Instead of coming in guns blazing, he's coming in on a humble donkey. And this does not compute with the crowds. And not just with the crowds, it's Jesus' own disciples. Look there at verse 16. It wasn't until a while later that Jesus' disciples understood the full impact of Jesus' actions here. Can we all just take a moment, step back here, and be encouraged by this? Jesus buds his closest friends that hung out with him 24-7 for years. His own disciples didn't even get what he was doing here. This whole thing went way over their heads. So I wonder how many times you and I read something in this book and we're like, huh? Like, I, I don't get it. What are, you, what are you talking about, God? We may spend a lifetime of pursuing God through this book and not fully understand what we've read until we've read it for the thousandth time. Or we may never fully grasp it in this life. But just be encouraged that Jesus' closest confidants didn't quite get it. Keep pressing Keep pursuing, Trinity, and just know that the Lord is going to teach you what you need in your time of need. The Lord is going to teach you what you need in your time of need. You can rest in that. So we have the jealous Jewish leaders, the frenzied crowd, and the close confidants and followers of Jesus. And none of these folks had put all the pieces together to understand what Jesus was claiming here. So I think it's possible to celebrate Jesus to celebrate the Jesus you want rather than the Jesus who is. It is possible to celebrate the Jesus that you want rather than the Jesus who is and what he claims to be in this book. Clearly, the grand majority of folks in town that day, including Jesus' closest friends, were celebrating the arrival of a king. But they were celebrating a king of their own making, not the king who was in the scriptures. We kind of have to cheat ahead in the story a little bit to know this, but by the time chapter 18 of John rolls around, the crowds have turned on Jesus, and we're talking like three or four days later. It's not long. All of these crowds have turned on Jesus. They're raucous again, but this time they want Jesus dead and not venerated. You ever wonder why 
the crowds, why and how the crowds turned so quickly on Jesus? How could they possibly have changed their minds so quickly? I think it's because right here, as he's coming into the city on this donkey, he is very intentionally underwhelming their expectations. He's claiming to be a different kind of king. Who does that? Who intentionally underwhelms crowds? When the Sixers steamroll the Raptors tonight, they're going to raise their arms in victory. They're going to try to stir the crowd up, at least a small amount of the crowd there that, that's in Toronto cheering for the Sixers, and rightly so. But not Jesus. He's practically shushing them as he rides in on a donkey. I can imagine a man, a Jewish man, pressing forward in the crowd that lined that bustling street, surrounded by waving palm branches and people as far as the eye can see, people chanting Psalm 118, and he's working, he's pushing, he's prodding, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, trying to make his way to the front of the line. People shove him back, and still he jostles for position, and finally he makes it to the front. Just in time to see a little caravan of haggard-looking dudes that are walking alongside of a man on a, wait for it, donkey. Man, where's the warrior, Jesus? Where's the deliverer? Like Simon, like Judas. What's this? On a donkey? Where's the mighty deliverer? In those moments, the tide is beginning to change in the city. People are changing their minds about this guy. This good-for-nothing rabbi was nothing but a bunch of hot air, they start to say. And now, because he hadn't come in the kingly way that they anticipated, they begin to turn on him. The deliverer they wanted wasn't the deliverer who was, but he was the deliverer that they needed. Now all the subtle claims to deity that Jesus had been making were becoming offensive to him. If he wasn't going to rescue them from Roman oppression, ain't nobody got time for that. They wanted a redeemer of their own liking. They wanted a redeemer of their own creation. They wanted a political activist to remove Rome's shackles and defend their freedom. But the, what they were getting was a redeemer. Not that would rule through conquest, but that would ironically rule through death. In just the space of three to four days, they demonstrated that it is possible to celebrate Jesus without truly surrendering to him. I wonder if it's easy for us in here today to celebrate Jesus without truly surrendering to him in the way that he conveys himself in the word of God. Do you celebrate more than you surrender? I think there are probably lots of different applications to this, but here's one. There are perhaps some of us in here today who like the idea of Jesus, but aren't sold on the identity of Jesus. Do you like the idea of Jesus, but not sold on the identity as the God-man? If this is you, I think you're kind of like the crowds here in this text. You're probably in favor of some of the perks of Jesus. You like how he makes you feel. You like the feeling of community and general positivity that comes from being in a gathering like this. You like his morality. You like most of his teaching. You like his ideals. You may even think of yourself as a pretty good person. But to you, Jesus is more of an example to follow rather than a king to submit to. You like his ideals, you're not sold on his identity. 
And to you, I'd ask this morning, are you sure? Are you sure that Jesus isn't God? If you're unsure, if you are sure, I should say, what evidence do you bring that he is not God? If Jesus is God, he is your creator, and you owe him allegiance. Not just approval, allegiance. I wonder how many of us in here today merely approve of Jesus rather than pledging our allegiance to Jesus. Okay, so our passage hinges on what we see next here in verse 21. And it's not just our text that hinges here for today. This is the trigger point for the entire rest of the book of John. So there's these Greek guys in town for the Passover festival. And they want to see Jesus. And this is interesting because up in verse 19, if you look, you've got the Jewish leaders whining that the whole world is following after Jesus. They're really concerned about this. And then subtly and comically, and I think really intentionally by the gospel writer here, by John, I think he affirms their greatest fears by what he writes next on purpose. Because think about, if you remember at the beginning of Jesus' life, he drew in seekers from the east. I have no idea if this is east, but we're going to pretend that it is for right now, okay? He drew in seekers from the east. Miriam, is this east? Okay. She's got like this internal GPS that's going on. So he drew in seekers from the east, the wise men, if you remember, uh, when Jesus was a baby. And then, now you all are trying to like figure this out. I distracted us. I apologize. I should not have done that. Let's just pretend that this is east, okay? I got us off track. Okay, wise men drawn from the east. And now here at the end of his life, he's drawing in seekers from the west, the Greeks. Jesus' message isn't just a Jewish message. It's a message of hope for the world, and that's good news for most of us in here. He indeed is drawing the world to himself. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every race. This is the primary reason why racism is so evil and nonsensical. Because Jesus is coming after all of us. And we all need his grace in equal measure, every single one of us. So these Greeks come to Philip. And I'm guessing they came to Philip because he was the only one of the disciples who had a Greek name. And so they feel a degree of comfort with him more than the others. And so they ask him if they can see Jesus. And so Philip goes to Andrew, and together the two of them go to see if Jesus is willing to chat with these Greek guys. So they ask Jesus, and we are hardly prepared for what happens next, for how Jesus responds. It's a staggering response. Jesus responds in a way that is completely counter to everything he said so far in the gospel, throughout the entire book. So far, Jesus has been kicking the can of his death down the road keeping his identity obscured and telling his disciples that his hour is not yet come. Here's just one example of that from way back in John chapter 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, what did he do? He withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself. Back to John 12 here. So the crowds are chanting, the branches are waving, the energy is high. Will Jesus walk away from this acclamation like he'd done so many times in the past? Or will he embrace it? Well, apparently, with this question from the Greeks, can we see Jesus? 
something has changed. Something has been triggered in Jesus' heart and mind. Jesus isn't ducking out this time. He's not hiding. He isn't walking away from acclamation. He's walking right into it. He's just doing it in a way that no one expected. And he's doing it all at the most explosively dangerous moment possible. It's an explosive political time. So in response to this request to chat with the Greek guys, Jesus says, the hour has come. So many times before, it was the hour is not here yet. But now the hour has come. It's here. Well, what is this hour? What's supposed to happen during this hour? Well, the text doesn't explicitly say this, but this is the Sunday before Passover. And this was a really big day in Jewish culture. They would have celebrated because it was the 10th the day of their month, Nisan. Kind of like you say the card, spelled a little bit differently, but it was the 10th day of their month, Nisan. This was the day each year, four days before the Passover celebration, same day each year, that they'd select the lamb to be sacrificed on Passover, just a few days later. And so I think it's very telling and super interesting that Jesus says about this day, okay, this is the day. This is my hour. I'm coming in now. All the lambs are being selected for the sacrifice on this day. And Jesus rides in. The Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world rides in just days before the final sacrifice of all time. For thousands of years, prophets, Jews, proselytes, they've all been looking forward to this day. On each of their days, it was not yet, not yet, not yet. But now Jesus is turning all of these thousands of years of not yets He's turning these not yets into nows. Because he's sovereign, Jesus turns not yets into nows. You see, this day did not take Jesus by surprise. He was on the three-person planning committee long before it happened. He knew it was coming, and he made it happen. In his divine sovereignty, Jesus arranged for this to happen at this very time, on this very day. He arranged for thousands of years of not yet to explode into this present now. This should fill us chock full of faith, Trinity. This is the kind of text that should recharge your battery when it's low. Jesus' timing is sovereign and right, not only then, but now in our lives. He knows what he's doing. Just be patient as you wait for all of your not yets to turn into nows. For all of us who are in Christ, we may feel like our world is just full of not yets from God. I understand that. I can empathize. It can be overwhelming. It can be frustrating, discouraging, confusing. As we wait for loved ones to heal or as we watch them languish, as we wait for sin struggles to dissipate or feel them continuing to dominate, as we wait for our division-riddled nation to be made whole, it can be mystifying. God, what are you doing? This reminded me of Paul's words to the Corinthians. He said this, but we have a treasure in jars of clay 
jars of clay. Do you ever feel like a clay pot? Breakable, expendable, fragile, transient. Well, that's intentional. It's God's purpose in your life to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I wonder if you feel like these next words are your resume right now. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. You're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down. Do you feel like that's you? Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Look, the Corinthian church thousands of years ago felt the same frustrations you feel moment by moment, day by day. They were aching for a bridge from the not yet into the now. Really frustrated. I just want you to know today, friends, that Jesus is proof that all of God's not yet's eventually turn into now's. All of them. Thousands of years of promises found their yes and amen in this hour as Jesus began to walk towards his death. If you've ever wondered, is Jesus trustworthy? Is Jesus worthy of your allegiance? Not just of your approval, but of your all-out, full-hearted allegiance. This moment in Jesus' life proves it. Look back at 2 Corinthians 4. How can Paul expect this from us? How can he expect that we will thrive while we wait for not yet to turn into nows? It's because of what he says here. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, amen, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How did Old Testament saints stay sane while they waited for all the messianic not yets to be turned into nows? How were they held fast? They set, their, they set their sights on the glory to come, not on the current affliction. Trinity, if you want to last until the end, if you want to make it through this life, you must do the same. You must set your sights on the glory to come as you encounter your current affliction. What you don't see Paul saying here in 2 Corinthians is search and search and search and search until you can find that little trap door that will provide an accelerated exit from your pain. He never says that. And you don't see Jesus doing this either. Thank God, Jesus willingly stepped into his darkest hour so that we might survive our final hour. And not just so that we might survive our final hour, but so that we might find real purpose in all of our dark hours, and the beautiful hours too. Don't spend time trying to sidestep the frustrations of the world. It's a futile pursuit. Instead, keep your eyes on Jesus, knowing that the glory that's coming is profound, and it is exquisite. Just look down at verse 26. What do you have to look forward to? The Father's honor. Your Creator's honor. A smile from your Creator. A high five. An encouraging laugh. 
a dance and a song from the one who created you. Lean into your dark hours, just as your Savior did, knowing that Jesus' timing is perfect and that honor, fruit, and glory are coming in his timing. This is how you flourish in the not yet. And now this text concludes with Jesus shedding light on what he meant by his hour. And it concludes in a way that would have been unexpected by all who were there in Jesus' presence, who could hear his voice. Look at verse 24. He says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus is hinting at what his final hour is going to be. Jesus is saying that his hour is his final hour, his death. He's saying, my pathway to glory is through death. And the crowd would have been like, wait, what? This hour of death you're talking about, that better not be your hour of death. We've got no use for a dead deliverer. You're here to deliver us from death, not enter into death. What is this hour of death you're talking about, Jesus? And can you blame them, really? And if you think about it, the truth behind what Jesus is saying is backwards. It's illogical. The metaphor is upside down. A small, dry husk is buried in a dark, damp hole in the ground. And who could possibly expect life to emerge from that? Deliverance emerging from death? It's nonsensical to this crew. And the same backwards logic applies to Jesus' own death. Killing him and burying him in a dark hole would prove to be the only way to glory for him and the only way to life for us. It is the glory of an apple seed to die. Why? Because out of the death of a single small seed will come a harvest of many beautiful apples. But what would happen if you just left that seed in that little packet you get at the store? What if you never put it into the ground so that it could deteriorate and die? What if you'd never put it in the ground? It would never die, and you would never get a harvest of apples. You'd just be left with a seed and no fruit. In the same way a seed is plunged into the ground, Jesus had to be plunged into death to make him fruitful. And it is the very thing that made him glorious. You cannot separate Jesus' glory from his death. They belong together. Because Christ's death on the cross will reap a great harvest of salvation. Scores of fruit. You and me and every other person, past, present, and future, who places their hope in Christ alone, that is the fruit of Christ's death. And here is perhaps the most sobering news of the day. Jesus has called you and me to follow in his steps. The steps of death. He called us to die to ourselves that we too might reap a great harvest of fruit. Lastly today, Jesus died to reproduce his life in yours. Jesus died to reproduce his life in yours. We learn here that Jesus' method of saving us, hear this, Jesus' method of saving us is meant to be imitated by us. Jesus' method of saving us through death is meant to be imitated by us. 
through death to ourselves. This is a hard thing, Trinity. Jesus was utterly perfect in every way. And we simply cannot bear his kinds of fruits without dying to ourselves every day, every moment, so that we can bear these worthy fruits, so that the people around us can be sustained by the fruit that our lives produce, just like we are sustained by the fruit that Jesus' death produced. So that moment when your kid threatens to turn you into a rage monster, die to yourself and live to Christ. It happened to me this morning. It's the only reason I say that. The moment you're tempted to click on that image for more, die to yourself and live to Christ. The moment you're tempted to bemoan your own life when you look at someone else's Instagrammably perfect life, die to yourself, live to Christ. Someone has said that follow me is the sum of our duty and where I am is the sum of our reward. This is true. Jesus' call on our life is to follow him into death. This is simultaneously hard and glorious because it takes us to where he is. This last moment here in the sermon, I think, is the most beautiful, uh, and it, it kind of captures what this whole text is about. So I want us to follow the argumentation that John is making here. Here's where it's hard. Verse 25, we die. Verse 25, we hate our lives in this world. Verse 26, we follow Jesus on the road to death. Verse 26, we become servants. To take the role of a waiter at Jesus' table is to do his bidding, no matter the task or the demand or how lowly the request. We become servants. And when we do these sorts of things that Jesus has done and is calling us to, what we find seems counterintuitive to us. Just like sticking a seed in the ground to die brings forth life, so dying brings forth glory for us. Look at how each bullet point is related to the associated ones above there on the screen. We die, we bear much fruit. We hate our lives in this world, we keep our lives for eternal life. We follow Jesus on the road to death, we join Jesus where he is in glory. We become servants, the Father honors us. It's a good gig to die with and for Jesus to ourselves. I don't fully understand all the hard things that Jesus did or demands from us, but I do understand this. For all the things he could have done with the darkness of our humanity, he chose to be born among simple people, to lean into his darkest day rather than try to escape it. He chose to be despised and rejected, to allow himself to be beaten, to allow himself to be stretched out and nailed to a brutal cross so that people like you and me could have life. Jesus' death brings us life. And our own spiritual death to ourselves is meant to bring life to the world around us. So embrace Jesus' death. Die to yourself and feed the world with the gospel fruit of your life. Are you dying to follow Jesus? That's the only way. We must die to follow Jesus. If you're not dying to follow Jesus, I'm not sure you're really following him. 
He's called us to die to ourselves and to live to him. We can only embrace this challenge because he died to eventually turn all of our not yets into nows. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Trust him. Follow him fearlessly right into the jaws of death. He's got you. Are you dying to follow Jesus? I hope so. Let's pray that God would enable us to die to follow him. Lord, you've called us to do a hard thing. Thank you for doing it for us, for living perfectly in our place, for dying violently in our place, and for rising victoriously so that we could have a place in your family, in your kingdom. I pray that you'd help us to know the practical steps of what it means to die to ourselves this week. That we would die to the lusts of our hearts, to the anger that is sinful against spouse, child, friend, coworker, to lying, cheating, and stealing from our workplace through being on the internet when we are not supposed to or from posting wrong hours. I pray that we would die to these kinds of sins and live to you and bear fruit that will feed a dying world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us in this, Lord. We want to die and follow you. Thank you for dying for us. In Jesus' name, amen.